Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, that show where we seek to be of one mind. That is the mind of Christ. And to do so, we have a great company of Christ-confessing Concordians here today. One in studio. I was going to be all by myself, but thanks to Pastor Peter Ill of Trinity in Milstadt, he he decided to uh, leave Winkle early and come on over and... No, the good news is I got to leave Winkle on time. That is oh, uh, our time. circuit pastor's conference. And I am overjoyed. Uh, I get to go do my very favorite, one of my very favorite pastoral care acts. I get to go to the hospital, hold a baby, and pray the uh, blessing of a child and mother after birth. And oh, so I am just pumped. That's that's excellent. So, yeah. so you got a little extra energy for the show I have today. a little extra energy for that's the great. show. And I'm halfway to the hospital this way so well that works well thanks for showing up and glad to be here we do also have uh two guests on the phone today uh we have pastor Merritt Dembski who is the pastor of Emmanuel and Waterloo Illinois uh welcome to the show Merritt hello sad I'm not there to be able to be there with Peter (laughs) (laughs) that's all right and And you too too. yeah (laughs) and you you uh joined us uh last time joined the company of Christ Confessing Concordians and so uh we're glad to have you back and another voice that uh, we've had on here before as well Pastor David Weiss who is the pastor of Concordia in Evansville Indiana welcome glad to be here all right. And I always forget to introduce myself, but really, I feel like people should know who I am by now. But I'm Pastor Sean Smith. I'm the pastor of a dual parish in Southern Illinois, St. Paul's Wine Hill and Emanuel West Point. And I'm the host. And it's great to be here with the listeners as we talk about our Lutheran confession of faith. And we use as our guide for that discussion, the Book of Concord. Uh, the show is, of course, called Concord Matters. And we are working through The Apology of the Augsburg Confession, which is found in that book of Concord. And uh, we are on Article 12 of Repentance. And we began that last week, and we're going to continue that discussion today. Um, Any kind of opening thoughts about this article for many of our guests? Silence. Silence. Well, I wanted to go ahead and jump in. As we reference a little bit here, there is going to be some references to uh, something called The Sentences. That's the name of a book. So in your mind, you can uh, go ahead and italicize that. And The Sentences were written by a theologian by the name of Peter Lombard. And these were the basic theological textbook that all uh, pastors and theologians would learn. They would, in fact, memorize them and go on and write theses and statements based on Lombard sentences, and they were the first couple of years of theological study and are the uh, underpinnings of all medieval theology and philosophy. And so as we bump into that, that's what we're going to be talking about uh, when we reference Lombard sentences here uh, as we get started in our reading today. That's a helpful uh, definition uh, before we get to it so that when I read it here in a minute, that will uh, indeed be understood. Uh, Pastor Weiss, I guess when you're on the phone and I can't see you guys, I'll just throw it to you by name. Pastor Weiss, any opening thoughts from you on this article before we dig in? Uh, Well, as 
as I looked at it uh, to try to get ready, um, I, as always with Melanchthon, I appreciate the organization of it. Um, there's so much that he covers, and he does it in a very organized way. We're going to be, I, I don't know how much we're going to get through today, but we're going to be able to look at, um, as it was just mentioned, the, um, the medieval view of repentance and the three parts to it. It's, it's, it's organized very nicely as, as, as we get to take a look at it. All right. And Pastor Dembski, any opening thoughts from you? Uh, just that that word repentance is so often seen as a negative thing because we don't like to be wrong. So when we're told repent and stop what you're doing, it sounds horrible. And yet when we realize that we are sinners, that we are separated from God apart from Christ, then we need to turn from what we are doing. And so um, hearing this and reading this and saying that that faith is what gives that hope and that peace um, is just beautiful as we dig into this. Yeah, that is a great thought there. And we talked some about that on the show last time about uh, uh, the nature of repentance and how we really don't like to, uh, um, you know, be repentant in that sense. I I would also add one other kind of thought to that, too, that uh, if you're using older editions of the Book of Concord, um, some of them will will use um, the word penitence, uh, which is which is a term we can use as well. That That is more connected with the idea of penance. And we've talked about on this show how uh, one of the issues between the the uh, um, Roman uh, theologians and the Lutherans is, is this translation from Jerome's uh, translation of Scripture in Latin, which says that you are to do penance. And so uh, in, in part, I, I don't know that this is entirely historically accurate, uh, but in part, I believe the Lutheran have moved more towards using repentance um, just to distance us from this false understanding of penitence, uh, doing penance. Um, not that that's even what that necessarily means itself, but that kind of connection there, too. Uh, and we talk, certainly talked about that last time, too, about how this is not a work that we do. But I like what you said there, Pastor Dembski, that this really does set our conscience at ease. The gospel really comes in here when we do understand the nature of repentance. So let's just go ahead and dig in then. We are using the Concordia Reader's Edition of the Lutheran Book of Concord, um, available uh, through CPH, and we are beginning um, with paragraph 4 in Article 12 of Repentance and the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. And I'm going to read for a little bit here. Before we defend our position, we must first say this. All good people of all situations, even the theological profession, undoubtedly confess that the teaching of repentance was very much confused before Luther's writings appeared. Theologians were never able to explain satisfactorily the numbers questions, the numberless questions found in the books of the commentaries on Lombard sentences. The people could not grasp the big picture, nor could they see what things were necessary for repentance and which peace of conscience could be found. Let any one of the adversaries come forth and tell us when the forgiveness of sins takes place. O oh, good God, there is such darkness. The adversaries do not know whether the forgiveness of sins happens in attrition or contrition. If forgiveness happens because of contrition, why do we need absolution? What does the power of the keys bring about if sins have been forgiven already? Here they work even harder and wickedly divert from the power of the keys. All right, we're going to go ahead and pause there. There's a lot to get in there. Uh, Pastor Weasel. Holy snark, Batman, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we, we've talked about that on the show a good bit. Oh, we do. Melanchthon is, is fully tongue-in-cheek, but I apologize for interrupting. No, that's all right. Yeah, I mean, and, and we call it snark uh, today, but uh, it, it's not really snark. I mean, he is just, yeah, being honest about the situation. And um, 
uh, I mean, there is real darkness here, as we're going to see and unfold here. Um, but as, as we get into that, Pastor Weist, uh, can you identify for us? Uh, so, so Pastor Ill identified um, the uh, what Lombard's sentences was all about. Can you identify for us what this attrition or contrition is all about? Yeah. Attrition basically is the idea that I'm sorry for my sin because I'm afraid of the punishment I might receive if I'm not sorry for my sin. That's attrition. Contrition is um, a sorrow for my sin because I see how much God loves me and I love him, and, and, and therefore I'm sorry for my sin. So one is fear of punishment. That's attrition. Um, and then contrition is out of love uh, uh, for God that, that I am sorry for, for what I do wrong. Yeah. And Pastor Dembski, why, why is that uh, distinction something that we're bringing out here? there's that idea that, well, why are you really sad? Are you really sad because you really are sad for the right reasons, or are you sad because you just don't want to get in trouble? And I think as soon as we were reading that, I think about that fact um, that almost any time someone important gets in any kind of trouble, I was just reading an article the other day about someone who had gotten in trouble going to jail for something. Everyone said, oh, yeah, they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't feel sorry if they wouldn't have gotten caught. And so kind of that question of, okay, where's your heart? Is your heart in the right place? Are you feeling bad for the right So getting to that nitpicky place where, um, where it still turns around to your feelings and your emotions on the matter, and then that's what his point is. There's such darkness. People don't know, is it because you felt bad or because you were just scared of getting punished that you're just acting like you're feeling sad? <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and I think also, too, they're, they're connecting back here. That, that's well said. And they're connecting back here, too, as well, Pastor Hill, um, to the article in the Augsburg Confession itself, where they identify repentance as this, contrition, that is, terror striking the conscience through knowledge of sin. That's how they identify it back in the Augsburg Confession. So uh, how those definitions that we just had here and why it's important, how does this tie in there? It really ties in because if, like Pastor Dembski was saying, you're scared of the, you're simply scared of the punishment, and you feel bad because you got caught for doing something wrong. This is like the parent and teacher's ultimate question. Are you just sorry because you got caught, or are you sorry because it was wrong in the first place? And if... if we are only afraid of God because he will punish us, then we are not loving the Lord our God. But as Pastor Dembski was talking about in the intro, and I thought this was really helpful, there's a comfort here. Uh, and it's not about a attrition that uh, if you're afraid of God, then it's going to be, you know, you, you say your I'm sorry's and you get on with life. But instead, you're called to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And when you do that, when you... Uh, are contrite and have a contrite heart, which God does not despise, then you can be comfortable and conf- confident Sorry, that you have this forgiveness of sins. And this is where Melanchthon says that it is a matter of consolation when you know that your sins are forgiven, when you are contrite for your sin and your sinfulness. But uh, on the flip side, when you simply try to revert back to all these books that have been been written about Lombard sentences, it, there's so many different answers, and there is so little assurance. And if you look to your own sorrow, contrition, attrition, or anything else in order to bring your absolution, then 
you're never going to have that confidence that your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, suffered and died to give you that forgiveness, to remake you, and to call you his very own. So so let me ask this then, and I'm just going to let whoever wants to jump in on this rather than throwing it to one specific person. So guys on the phone, just talk whenever you're ready after I get my question out. But uh, when, when, when I was a kid, right, um, if I'm honest, I was rarely sorry, all right, um, because it was a poor reflection on my parents, and, and rarely was I sorry that, you know, because I loved them and they loved me, that I desired to live according to their rules for the household or whatever have you. Um, rarely was I sorry in that sense. Uh, sorry, Mom and Dad, if you're listening, that I was never sorry for that sense. I was only ever sorry when I got caught, right? And so is that not true repentance then? What do you guys think? Is, is it not true repentance if we're only sorry if we got caught, this attrition? It's definitely repentance. Is it true repentance or not? Gee, I don't know. Uh, but here's the thing. At a certain level, it doesn't matter because each of us, as a poor, miserable sinner, is completely and totally broken. That means that each and every one of us is a bad broken repenter. Uh, my ability to turn away from sin is obviously broken, because if I could turn away from sin completely, I wouldn't sin anymore. But being that I do, uh, if it's it's not even that it comes down to our motives. We simply cry out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he does. And so... It's not the quality of my repentance. It's not the quantity of my repentance. It is, though, the work of the Holy Spirit who lives in me, who continues to call me away from my sin and my sinfulness, and to return my eyes to Christ, the author and perfecter of my faith. Yeah. To that, to that point, um, you know, we're, we're always going to be broken. We're always going to find ways in which we didn't do it right. You know, uh, uh, I know growing up, there was always that question, did I say this the right way? Did I really mean it when I said it? You know, and all of my, my trust and peace was essentially, I didn't have the categories to use, but attrition or contrition. You know, was I, was I really sad or was I just scared of getting caught? And I think we always fluctuate between the two. You know, we might feel nervous about getting caught, but then we realize ultimately that it's, it's wrong what we've done. But as we get to, in just a couple sentences, that uh, the thing we always focus and return back to is that faith side of it. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Okay. Uh, with that, I mean, and we will get, we will get to this when we get to the, um, the next part where it talks about confession. But um, before we get there, I, I lost track. We we need to. Um, well, I I guess in a, in a nutshell, we need to make sure that we're not. I, one of the things that that uh, Melanchthon does very well is he he keeps um, merit and grace in opposition to one another in this regard. And 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 your your question kind of kind of blends the two, so that we're looking at um, at contrition or attrition is is somehow. Uh, meriting grace instead of seeing those two things in opposition with one another. Um, my, my understanding, I, I was reading a little of, of Luther on repentance from the small called articles to get ready for this, and and it, it seemed to me like he was saying attrition was kind of, when we get to that point where we um, of confession where we're talking about it, that, that complete enumeration of our sins, 
um, we get into trouble when it comes to um, always being contrite. And so attrition was sort of a, uh, well, if you can't enumerate all your sins and be sincere because you don't even really know all your sins, at least you can be afraid of punishment, and, and that's better than nothing. Um, but again, that that that's a sort of you know darkness, the sort of maze or trap that we get into when we when we we don't keep merit and grace in opposition with one another in this in this matter. Talk, talk a little more about that. What do you, what do you mean by this merit and grace? Um, well, I mean, the, uh, I think it's in the, the the next few sentences where the I don't. He may have already started these questions, but. In this area of contrition, he has three questions, um, basically, that he asks. Um, if contrition affects forgiveness, um, why is absolution necessary? Um, if the power of the keys does not console us in the eyes of God, then, then we'll bring peace to the conscience. Um, and, and, and I think it's why, going back to, you know, whether or not it's snarkiness, when he, talks, when he says, good God, there is such darkness, um, he's he's recognizing that that what confession has become is is they've taken away absolution, they've taken away forgiveness, they've taken away grace, they've taken away Christ's perfect work on our behalf, and they've replaced it with with uh, with a merit based system. Um, and so, as he as he breaks down what what is the was the medieval understanding of confession really without absolution, he's He's, he's putting those things properly in opposition again. Yeah, thanks for that. I, and I, I should confess here, I, I was I was setting up all of my guests here, because this is what I wanted to get to, especially these three questions, right? And I think you just took us there, Pastor Weiss, and that was really quite good. And and, and Pastor Earl, you actually started on this as well, too, and, and Pastor Dembski continued it, that it, it is repentance, right? And so the, the, the goal is not to narrow it down to these, you know, what form does it take and so forth. The, the goal is that it leads me to repentance, right? And then the absolution is, is the thing that we really want to focus on here. And I think this does flow into these three questions and it's going to continue to go there because, because even, as, and it's going to get here and it's going to talk about uh, the difference between uh, Judas and Saul and David and those guys and so forth. And, and what's the difference? I mean, they're all led to repentance at some point, right? There's sorrow over their sin. And, and, you know, just to pull out David as an example, David had his sin shown to him. He got caught, right? And so, but it's still repentance. One of the things that, uh, um, comes to my mind when I was a pastor uh, in Evansville, Indiana, where Pastor Weist is uh, um, for my first uh, call parish ministry. Uh, I taught a Lutheran confessions class there, and one of the laymen going through this uh, said to me, he said, this really brings to mind the fact that I can't even repent rightly. And I was like, yes. And Pastor Ellie, you were kind of talking about that as well, too, right? Exactly. My repenter is broken. <laughs> <laughs> My repenter's broken. Simply stated, thank you for that beautiful, eloquent um, image there. <laughs> and, now, and now we're just going to make hands in the studio. Oh, All right. I'm sorry. Yeah, this is great radio here. Thanks, thanks for the help, buddy. I'm glad Peter's there to wave his hands today instead of me without anyone being able to see it. Yeah, yeah, okay. you were you were quite good at that last week. All right. Uh, so let's go ahead and get back to uh, reading here. So we're we're gonna pick up on these three questions and I'm going to I'm going to 
restate that again. So I kind of hung on there. The adversaries do not know whether the forgiveness of sins happens in attrition or contrition. And that was flowing forth from what happens in the sentences. They're trying to make a theological point with all of this in their systematic textbooks and, and things at that time, systematic theology textbooks. But the the great darkness, as I think was well stated by our guests here, is, is that it becomes so confusing that Christians who desire to live as Christians are so confused by this. They don't know what to do with this. And so uh, then then these questions naturally follow. If forgiveness happens because of contrition, why do we need absolution? What does the power of the keys bring about if sins have been forgiven already? Here they work even harder and wickedly divert from the power of the keys. I'm going to keep reading here. Some imagine, uh, imagine that guilt is not forgiven by the power of the keys, but that eternal punishments are changed into temporal ones. So the most beneficial power would be the service, not of life and the spirit, but only of God's anger and punishments. The more cautious imagine that sins are forgiven before the church and not before God by the power of the keys. This also is a deadly error. For if the power of the keys does not comfort us before God, what will quiet the conscience? What follows is even more involved. The adversaries teach that we merit grace by contrition. In reference to this, if anyone should ask why Saul, Judas, and similar similar persons who were dreadfully contrite did not receive grace, here's the answer. We take it from faith and according to the gospel that Judas did not believe. He did not support himself by the gospel and Christ's promise. For faith shows the distinction between the con- contrition of Judas, Matthew 27.3-5, and of Peter, Matthew 26.75. But the adversaries take their answer from the law that Judas did not love God, but feared the punishments. When will a terrified conscience be able to decide whether it fears God for his own sake or is fleeing from eternal punishments? I'm going to pause there, even though it's in the middle of a a paragraph line here. But go ahead and uh, Pastor L, jump in and and kind of lay out what 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 were we just talking about here? Why, Why are these questions important? Well, Melanchthon is pointing out there's a philosophical move that they're making, and they are saying, well, so you have these eternal sins, and when you confess them before God, that's fantastic, and now the eternal consequences for your sins are transformed into temporal consequences. And so God's not angry with you anymore, but you still have to deal with some of the eternal, or sorry, the temporal here and now consequences of your sin, and this all plays into the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory and so on. So you're converting really bad eternal sins into, well, kind of bad temporal sins. And it's you can deal with those at least. Um, and your ability to be contrite and to feel bad about your sin, that is what's really necessary. And Melanchthon says, that is complete and total hogwash. Where in Scripture do we see this distinction between eternal sins and uh, or eternal consequences of sins and temporal consequences of sin? We see that there is eternal consequences of sin because the wages of sin is death, both for unbelief, that's an eternal consequence, and that even believing Christians suffer and die, that's a temporal consequence. And at no point does Scripture make this distinction between the eternal and the temporal consequences like that, that you can deal with one and not the other. But that's uh, what the Roman Catholic philosophy and theology had been doing. Well, and I think it's also further laying out what they laid out earlier and what we talked about on the show last week, too, is, and, and it's also in the Augsburg Confession itself, this idea that 
you can and will fall after baptism, you know, and, and, and so where do I, where do I find comfort for my conscience when that happens? And when you're distinguishing it out to the big sins, the mortal sins, venial sins, you know, and the Catholic, the eternal consequences, the the temporal consequences and all these sorts of things, it just becomes this convoluted mess, right? Uh, Pastor Dembski, jump in there. Well, it's, it's interesting because when I, when we talk about this, the first thing that pops to mind is our own discussion of like uh, the two kinds of righteousness, you know, like we're made right with Christ, but there's also consequences in the world. You know, if you, if you get a speeding ticket, that doesn't mean you're going to get to heaven. It's going to be like, well, I know you got that speeding ticket, you know, like, but you might have to pay a fine or you might have to go to court or, you know, like those kind of things. And yet it is so uh, pulled in and over-exaggerated. I don't know if that's making any sense. It's just what was, Coming to my mind is we're talking about how you have that, uh, well, you've got the eternal stuff taken care of, but you've got the temporal stuff, and we'd, we'd say something uh, that Christ takes care of all of the eternal. Christ is taking care of it. We might have, you know, if you, if you do something, if you uh, uh, sin against someone, you might have consequences, but it's not uh, something that affects that eternal stuff that Christ is taking care of for you. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It sounded right in my mind. <laughs> well, and that's all that really matters, right, Pastor Dembski? <laughs> I'll take that as a, let's clean this up now. <laughs> Pastor Weiss, go ahead with about a minute to go before break. The, the problem with, with this, this whole system is it's impossible to know exactly when forgiveness takes place, and therefore there's no comfort. And, and the examples that he gives, I like especially the example of, of Judas um, it says, you know, the, the excuse that is given is, again, there wasn't contrition, it was attrition. In other words, Judas only feared punishment. But, but if we use that to kind of explain Judas away, it creates a problem for us. How will the conscience know whether it is a love for God or a fear of punishment that they're feeling? And, and um, I, I think it mentions on, on paper that you might be able to tell the difference, you know, as a theologian, you may be able to tell the difference. But in our lives, it's not so easy to separate to understand, and it gets back to what we were saying at the very beginning about sincerity, and it really comes down to, am I sincere or not? And therefore, I have no comfort. I don't know when forgiveness takes place. And that's why when we talk about confession, we always talk about absolution at the same time. I like that. That is really well said. And that's really the heart and center of this question that we're facing here is when does forgiveness take place? And we've talked about how the Roman theologians are centering their discussion around when does repentance take place? And the Lutheran argument is essentially that's not the point. It's when does forgiveness take place so that we can have comfort. We're going to continue this great discussion right after this break. Listen to AM850 KFUO and KFUO.org each Wednesday in Lent for live Lenten worship services at 11 a.m. from Peace Lutheran Church in St. Louis. Join KFUO, Senior Pastor Dennis Kasten, and the members of Peace for these special Lenten worship services. Again, that's each Wednesday morning at 11 during Lent on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news.
Join Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service and congregations across the country as we celebrate Refugee Sunday, a time to lift up the gifts that migrants and refugees bring to our country and to reflect on Christ's message to welcome the stranger. Together, we can continue the mission of welcoming, embracing, and empowering newcomers. Visit lirs.org slash kit to download the Refugee Sunday Kit for your congregations, including worship guides, bulletin inserts, videos, and more. lirs.org slash kit. We confess one holy Christian and apostolic church. Does apostolic mean one unbroken chain of ordinations leading back to the apostles? Live Tuesday on Issues Etc. will discuss apostolic succession with Pastors Will Whedon and Heath Curtis. We'll also have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on sin entering the world. Issues Etc. Live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio, an hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Oratio, the dawn breaks with prayer every morning on Worldwide KFUO. Sherry Cole, NCAA Division I head coach, led the University of Oklahoma women's basketball team to 18 consecutive tournament appearances through 2017. But in the 2012-2013 season, preparing for the Big 12 tournament, four players were injured. She gave the remaining players a mustard seed, reminding them of the words of Jesus from Matthew 13, verses 31 through 32. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Cole said, they study the scripture all the time, so I knew immediately they would know the implications of Jesus' words. They finished the season with a 24-11 and 11 record, succeeding despite the obstacles. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to Concord Matters. I am your host, Pastor Sean Smith, along with my guests today, Pastor David Weiss, Pastor Merritt Dembski, and Pastor Peter Ill. And in the first half of the show, I forgot to give out the number. This is a live call-in show. If you have questions, you'd like to talk about this, um, we could always use another person on the phone. We have extra phone lines. So please call in 1-800-730-2727. You can find us on the social media things, uh, our uh, good good friend uh, Sarah Golseth will be glad to uh, to to work on patching that information through to us here in the studio and at KFUO uh, thanks in advance Radio. For that. Uh, yeah. yeah, thanks in advance, Sarah. And at KFUO Radio is our Twitter handle, and I think we're out there on the Facebook too, but. I'm not smart enough yeah. to be able to do You can to go to kfuo.org and find all sorts oh, of great yeah. information. But but we are continuing our discussion on repentance. And so I repent to the fact that I forgot to give that information out beforehand. Um, but I'm not sure if my repentance is attrition or contrition. Are I, you I really got, sorry? I got caught for not giving out the information, and I should have. So I guess it's attrition. Um, but I also don't fear the punishments. I don't know. I don't think they're going to kick me off halfway through a show. But anyway... 
coming back to the issue here, that's not the issue. It's not about uh, <laughs> it's not about uh, if if I'm repentant, right or not. It's about forgiveness. When does forgiveness happen? And that's really the center of this issue. And we were just talking about that with these questions um, and this uh, a couple paragraphs that are kind of working this way through it. And they give examples. I want to talk about this. They give the example of the difference between Judas, as we see in Matthew 27, 3 to 5, and Peter, Matthew 26, 75. Uh, Pastor Dembski, I'm going to throw that one to you. Uh, go ahead and talk about what's what's the difference there? What, why do they bring that example in here? Well, it's that difference of faith. Um, if you've got you've got that example of Judas who goes and hangs himself, he doesn't trust that that forgiveness, that peace that Christ brings. But but Peter, uh, we see him repent. We see him trust Christ's promise of forgiveness. And so you see um, that it's not a matter of how each one repented, but about their faith and what God's promise was as a result of it. And in Judas, we don't see that faith, but in Peter, we do see that faith. Yeah, I think that's really a great point there, because, I mean, and you're talking about, they they both are repentant. I mean, they're both sorry for what happened. I mean, you got Judas, he goes and he throws the silver pieces back at him, right, and uh, wants to, you know, kind of make up for it by his works. Uh, This would be a great point even against the Roman theologians and their idea of repentance and doing penance, um, you know, that you would do something to earn it. Um, But but we also have Peter who walks away sorrowful uh, for denying Jesus three times. And so as Pastor Weiss uh, said, right, very well before the break. It's about when forgiveness happens. So so what's the difference then in these two about when forgiveness happens, Pastor Wiest? Well, first of all, what we just said was uh, the difference between the two is faith. And we recognize faith always needs something to grab hold of. Faith does grab hold of something. In, in the case of Judas, it tried to grab hold of, of, I guess you could say, penance or his works, and, and it was insufficient. Um, the, the faith of Peter grabs hold of forgiveness. We don't really see the complete fruition of that, I guess, until after the resurrection, when he hears words of forgiveness from Christ. Um, but faith, um, and again, confession has to be followed by absolution. I mean, that's what the Scriptures point to. Um, that's what the Christian faith is all about. Our faith grasps absolution, and that's what consoles the conscience. Pastor Wiest, would you say that Judas confessed his sin, or just that he felt contrition over it, or even attrition? Good, good point. Um, I, <laughs> and I, I, I realize I, we're I, we're getting closer and closer to kind of dancing on the head of a, a head of a pin here, or angels dancing on the head of a pin. But I. I think that sometimes we have this temptation to want to jump in and and answer questions that are kind of kind of above our pay grade. Um, mm-hmm. I know I I try to do that all the time, and yeah. I shouldn't. But as as we get to talking about this issue, it it points out we know that Judas felt bad about what he did. Mm-hmm. Was he seeking Christ's forgiveness or not? Even. Th- even as Christ died for Judas and for the whole world, was Judas looking for that forgiveness? Was he making a confession, or did he just utterly despair? Right. I, and, I, you know, I'm not even sure. I, I suppose, I mean, 
I, I don't know how far you want to go with this. I, I suppose it kind of depends on, again, what we're talking about, the definition even of confession. If if it's just a, kind of an enumeration of sins, I mean, did, was was Judas aware of, sorry for, and, and in some sense even enumerate his, his sins? Well, not all of them, but, but, you know, the sins that were burdening him. I, mean, like, I guess he did, as far as confessing them to God with the hope of being forgiveness, pretty clearly that didn't happen. Um, he... I don't know if he, he, it seems like he kind of went from contrition straight to penance, but I think that's what happens when when you don't have confession absolution. You know, it, you, you don't really have confession at all. You have a, I'm sorry, I, I'm going to try to make it better. And, and so confession absolution, it's almost like there is no confession, really. Indeed. And so we have this whole focus isn't so much on making confession or enumerating sins uh, but we're really tempted to think about it that way but really this is about god's forgiveness and there comes a point where we might even be tempted to put our faith into the absolution and it's possible to want to turn even the act of being absolved into its own kind of magic formula or magic pill, but it's not that. Ultimately, this is about faith that has as its object not the magic words of absolution, but instead it has the faith in Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Savior, who loved the world so that he suffered and died so that... All who believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That is the promise that we are given. That is the promise that we cling to. And and these questions that Melanchthon raises and that we're continuing of, well, when does that happen? When are you sorry enough? Have you enumerated enough of your sins? Does it matter how long it's been since the last time you made you, made a confession? Uh, did Judas confess or not? All of those questions are really... Uh, they're fun to kind of speculate about, but that's really all we can do, because at the end of the day, we simply say, do you believe that this forgiveness is God's forgiveness? Do you believe that you are a poor, miserable sinner? And do you believe that Christ's grace is applied to you? And then we get to hear not any kind of magic word, but the life-giving, life-transforming, life-changing word of God in the absolution is spoken to us by the people that he's put in place to do just that. This is a point I want us to, to dwell on here for just a little bit, because I think it's really important. I think it's where the rubber hits the road in the sense that, uh, um, you know, the, the question is not for us, especially as we're all pastors here, you know, are, are they uh, repentant enough? Um, you know, you know, are they are they coming in perfect confession, you know, and and, you know, do they see all of their sin and things like that? Pastorally speaking, when when you have um, someone, whether it be in your office or in your parish and you and you go out and, and you know, uh, engage them uh, to to lead them in repentance, you, you see what's going on and that are struggling and so forth. You know, how do we as pastors and, and I think we can even apply this for just brother and sister Christians for the lay people that are listening out there as well. But how do we help lead one another to the main thing, which is the absolution, the power of the keys, as it talks about here? I, if I can cut in real quick. Absolutely. I think one of the I, I think getting back to that basic of what faith is, because I like the word repentance. There's so many uh, 
inferences and implications with the word repentance and many misunderstandings of what it means to repent, right? And so oftentimes, it seems like the word faith is so overcomplicated. I mean, it's, it's, it's simply trust, and it's not even trust that we produce, it's trust given to us by the Holy Spirit. And for people that, uh, that have grown up hearing the word faith, so oftentimes, uh, wrongly I should say, it's, it, you've got this idea that you just have to have faith, but in what, right? And as Pastor Ill said, um, the uh, people will put their faith in the gifts that God has given rather than in his promises. And, you know, we, we, uh, uh, we see movies where people, uh, uh, you know, have a cross or people will uh, make the sign of the cross as almost a, a spiritual barrier for themselves, trusting in like that symbol rather than what it uh, means for them, you know, trusting in Christ's forgiveness and stuff. And so oftentimes that word faith is just, well, I've got faith as long as you have faith. And, and people say that, but, but reminding the individual who is confessing their sin and, and who is wrestling with this, that, that do you believe that Jesus has forgiven your sin? Yes. You know, do you trust that even this sin is forgiven by Christ crucified for you? Yes. You know, and it's, and it's something so simple in that way. It's not easy always, you know, because we're always battling our sinful nature. We're always battling ourselves, trying to put our trust in something more visible and tangible. And yet that's what absolution is. It's that, that hearing of God's Word. It's not just a, a passing feeling or something like that. It's, it's hearing God's Word. It's seeing the pastor in front of you, you know, either making the sign of the cross, placing his hand on, on your head, you know, like it's, it's something very tangible that, that, uh, we trust God's promises in, not uh, the pastor is so neat, but that God's promise is being delivered through this person. Yeah, I and I think you uh, hit on kind of a multi-headed monster there, too. And, uh, you know, how do we even understand what faith is? And, you know, I, I, I think you define it well when you say trust. I think a common thing that comes out, too, when we talk about faith is that people view faith as, kind of the works that they have to do. And, and, and I think that's very common, especially in our American uh, evangelical society and so forth that, uh, you know, it's all about living a good life and getting, uh, you know, uh, living a good moral upstanding life and so forth. And one of the things I like to do to expose that, uh, you know, because it leads them to repentance to just see the brokenness of it is I asked the Dr. Phil question, how's that working out for you? Is, are you, are you doing all right with that one? And, uh, it usually leads to that realization of brokenness pretty quick. And then I can lead them to absolution pretty quick too. And growing up, that was my understanding growing up. It was always faith is this work. So when you talk to someone about faith, you would be talking about their work. And so you always we're trying to figure out what are you going to look to that's from God, because this faith stuff is from me. And just a couple weeks ago, uh, as I'm going through the book of Ephesians with our high school students, um, in the Lutheran study Bible, uh, the beginning of Ephesians talks about saving faith, and they talk about some of the misunderstandings of what faith is. You know, faith just in faith. I have faith. Well, in what? I have faith. <laughs> now it's like, well, it matters what you have faith in, or that uh, emotionalism, having that faith in our feelings, or um, faith as a work that we offer to God, what we're talking about right here, this synergism. But if we look at what Scripture talks about faith, it's God's gift to us. So the fact that we can say, I believe that what you are saying is true is God's gift to us. 
Um, but yeah. That idea that sometimes faith can become its own object, that you end up having faith in your own faith. Or if, if you're a Latin scholar at home, you can talk about fideism, that is faith in, in your own faith, uh, is an idol that the devil often uses to tempt Christians, I think, where he says, hey, you have faith, and because you have faith, then everything is golden. And by focusing your attention on your faith instead of on Jesus Christ, we end up realizing the depth of our brokenness right there because we're tempted even to look at our own faith and give ourselves a little bit of a pat on the back. Uh, Pastor Weiss, we haven't heard from you for a little bit. I don't know that I have anything to to offer to add to that. I, I, I agree. Faith is not its own object. Faith in this case, we're talking, well, in any case, as Christians, we're, our, our, the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. And in this case, um, we're talking about his words of absolution um, that are meant for us to, to console us, um, to console us as sinners. So uh, faith grabs hold of absolution because, because when we're talking about absolution, we're talking about, um, we're talking about the words of Jesus for us. Very, very good. And... Might I just say as an aside, I got to work on like my guests. Like I get these pastors that I really respect and trust myself. I had one last week and then also Pastor Weiss this week. We had Pastor Apple last week. They both just say, I don't know if I have anything to add on that. It's like you're on the radio. Please add. Them. I'm just messing with you, Pastor Weiss. But uh, <laughs> no, that, that is. And, and I like big not in the studio is he can't just reach over and slap you. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why I do it from afar. These guys are always on the phone when they when they do it, too. Yeah. But uh, no, seriously, I, I do think think that you had something significant to add there, though. Uh, so you dismissed uh, that you had nothing to add, but you brought us back to baptism. And I do think that that's an important thing uh, that we return to. Talk a little bit more about that. How does repentance uh, and faith in the, in the promise of Christ return us to our baptism? Because this is a very Lutheran connection that we tend to make. Uh, well, I would when we talk about baptism, we talk about it as um, uh, the gift that keeps on giving, right? Um, and, and so we live in our baptisms, um, drowning that old Adam, confessing our sin, um, assured um, of, of the forgiveness of sins that, that we received in that, in that water um, that was combined with God's Word of Promise. So Again, I, I mean, the connection is God's word of promise. It's there with the water. It's it's there in the words of absolution spoken by the pastor. Um, I don't. I know. I know. For me, baptism is the a most amazing gift coming into the Lutheran Church. Like, well, into what Scripture teaches. <laughs> I mean, like, um, I always want. I always try to make sure to distinguish it that way because it's not just well. There was this guy named Luther, and he decided that we're going to start believing this way like, no, this is just what the Church teaches of the importance of baptism. And uh, being able to look outside of myself for peace and comfort, because there's not much to look inside at. <laughs> you know? um, as uh, Pastor Ill said, my repenter is broken, right? I can't look at my repentometer and see how well I'm doing, but I can always look back to that water. I can always look back to God's promise delivered to me there, uh, not as my own work, but as his gift to me. And it is uh, a beautiful thing to always be able to return to that never uh, gets old. It doesn't need renewed. It's a daily returning to. 
which, which returns us to that forgiveness that we have and I think connects into uh, kind of the next uh, section here. So I'm going to continue reading. So we, we've been talking about the errors and the terrors that come in with with uh, not understanding rightly uh, what what the main thing is all about in repentance. And they're going to drive it home here in just a second, which I think returns us to our baptism. So I'm going to continue reading. This is in the middle of paragraph uh, nine. The Psalms and the prophets describe those serious true and great terrors which they the truly converted experience such great emotions can be distinguished in letters and terms but they are not separated in fact and these dear philosopher as these dear philosophers imagine here we appeal to the judgments of all good and wise people undoubtedly they will confess that these discussions and the writings of the adversaries are very confused and intricate still the most important subject is at stake the chief topic of the gospel the forgiveness of sins in the writings of the adversaries this entire doctrine about these questions is full of errors and hypocrisy and clouds over christ's benefit the power of the keys and the righteousness of faith and i think that just drives home that point there um i I think pastor dembski is uh, trying to rival pastor ill for a title for the show with a repentometer uh instead of uh what was the one that you had my repenter my repenter is broken right uh but uh yeah so the point is is that our repenter is broken our repentometer is not going full scale whatever image you want to use on this the, the main thing is driving us at the forgiveness of sins. And when we cloud the doctrine of repentance with these other things, we lose that. And as we start looking at all of these questions and speculations, when are we really forgiven? Are we sorry enough? Is this contrition or attrition or something else? As we look at all of that, we take our eyes off of Jesus and we stop hearing the words that Christ has sent a called and ordained servant to proclaim his forgiveness into your ears to declare that you, dear Christian, are forgiven. And we think, oh, 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 aside from that whole, like, forgiveness thing, am I sorry enough? And the level of navel-gazing and trying to uh, deal with your own inadequacies by dealing with your own inadequacies is really strong with us as sinners. That's exactly what we do best. In paragraph 12, um, we didn't quite get there, but it it has this great illustration. Um, It it basically is saying, look, if, if, if we do the contrition thing, if we do the confession thing, and then we move to the, the third part, the satisfaction or penance, um, if we do that, what they compare it to, um, to, to do all those things, the, the endless enumeration of sins without absolution is like people departing before the mysteries. And according to the note that I have, that's a reference to the, the catechumens in the early church leaving before they received the Lord's Supper. Um, and I, I love that illustration of, of departing before the mysteries. The, the absolution, it's, it's right there on the altar, but it's being left on the table for the sake of, of, of moving into the next part, which is penance or satisfactions. And, and so the people continue to wonder, am I forgiven or not? And it's, it's just such a, a terrible and sad image of, of a person who's, whose back is turned and they're work, walking away when, when that forgiveness is, is laying right there for them, um, but, but they don't have it. Yeah, I, 
And and I think you're definitely right in that next section, which we won't really have time to push forward to. That's why I didn't uh, take us there yet. But I, I think it does drive home that point of departing before the mysteries. And I think the main point there is talking about the Lord's Supper. Uh, it, it, it would be talking about the, the Holy Sacrament of Christ's body and blood. I think in connection with that, too, is also the other sacrament that we have, the sacrament of baptism, uh, in which we see our forgiveness of sins. That, too, is a mystery of God, which he delivers to us. I think about in my own parish ministry, both uh, the congregations I serve at Emmanuel and St. Paul's, uh, we have the baptismal front font right there uh, in the front. And whenever I speak the absolution, I always position myself so that the people in the congregation uh, hear that absolution through the baptismal waters. And and to kind of look to your own works, to look to your own satisfaction of these things is departing before the mysteries. You're not seeing any forgiveness um, and it's not going to work out for you. Um, when when you when you hear that forgiveness as through anything else but what Christ imparts to you in these holy gifts that He has given to the church, Pastor Demsky. Um, I I've never, well, I I didn't grow up Lutheran, so I can't say I've never seen that, but I haven't seen that. Uh, but I love that image that you just described of uh, positioning yourself by the the baptismal font for absolution you know, drawing people's attention to that place where forgiveness is given and reminding of where that forgiveness is given. Um, where that baptismal font is in a church building, it's amazing that you can put it so many places and have the significance of it uh, uh, presented to the people, whether it's in the, you know, uh, as you're walking into the church building or if it's right in the center front or right by the pulpit or right near the, the lectern, you know, like it's it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. I've just never heard that uh that absolution method, but it's probably something I just haven't heard of, but is very common. And that does tie into some of our Easter traditions, too, where at the Easter vigil, um, the Paschal candle is held next to or even in the baptismal font as we remember that all who are baptized into Christ's death are also baptized into his resurrection. What gives baptism its power? What gives absolution its power? the crucified and risen Christ does. And so, absolution, baptism, all of this, and the Lord's Supper, too, are all flowing from the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, we're focused not just on all the wonderful things and truisms that Jesus said, but we are focused on Jesus who suffered, who died, and who rose. And we are tied to that in baptism, in absolution, and in the Lord's Supper. And, and I think you're right there too, Pastor Demsky, that you say, you know, wherever it's placed, it has this significance. Um, whether it be at the entrance to the church, you pe- you enter into the sanctuary of God to receive His divine gifts in the divine service uh, through those baptismal waters. And it's very common for folks. Uh, we um, all went to St. Louis Seminary here and uh, Concordia Seminary here in St. Louis, and and it's placed there at the front as well. And it's very common to see guys dip their fingers in the water and uh, make the sign of the cross and so forth. You're reminding yourself how you enter in to receive these divine gifts. Um, but I think it all makes that same beautiful point, and, and you talk to the Easter Vigil as well. It ultimately drives home this this main idea um, that it's really all about the forgiveness of sins. Pastor Weiss, with about a minute left, do you want to give us some closing thoughts here? My only, my only thing to offer, Sean, is um, thank you, um, because now um, I know 
where forgiveness takes place. It took place on the cross, and it's been given to me in my baptism, and I receive it through holy absolution and at the Lord's Supper, and thank God for it. Where forgiveness takes place. No, thank you, Pastor Weiss, for bringing that uh, very great point into our discussion today. I want to thank all of our uh, guests today, Pastor David Weiss, pastor at Concordia in Evansville, Indiana, uh, Pastor Meridemski, pastor at uh, Manuel and Waterloo, Illinois, uh, Pastor Peter Ill, pastor at Trinity in Millstadt, Illinois, and again, the chief most important subject at stake in this article on repentance is the gospel. The forgiveness of sins. That's what it drives us to. It tells us to find our forgiveness there. That's what we gather together every single Sunday about. And so I would encourage all Christians listening to this. If you want to know where your forgiveness is found when you are repentant and beat down by the world, find it where God has given to you in baptism, in the Lord's Supper. You'll find that gathered together as around the word and the sacraments. It's been a great discussion on repentance today. Thanks for stopping by, and until next time, keep confessing, church.